If you would please stand with me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but, as, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word of the Lord. Good morning. We've been making our way through Peter's first letter to the churches that he was involved in in planting, in starting. And as persecution has increased in the Mediterranean world, it's not the grand persecution that we'll probably see under the reign of Nero, which is coming. But as the situation has heated up, uh, churches and the people in the churches have the temptation to pull away or withdraw from practicing their Christianity in an overt way or from uh, engaging the discipline of the faith. And Peter's concerned about them making it, actually continuing to walk in faithfulness in a way that will, of course, be good for them and honor God. As we've considered uh, Peter's letter, we saw that in the first week that we engaged it, that Peter stresses salvation. This is his uh, starting point. And he said that the people in the churches are both elect and exile, that they've been chosen by God, Chosen for a purpose. And as a result of this, they will be sojourners for their entire life. You are never a people who will have a home. And to the degree that we get fooled into thinking that this is our home, is often the degree to which we move away from God and become overly comfortable with this place and where we exist. We are sojourners. We are a people uh, whose citizenship exists in another place. And while we wait to be returned to the presence of God and for all things to be wrapped up, Peter says you have a purpose. And he went on and we looked at verse, or in the second week, that Peter advocates that you need to be holy. You've been called to be holy as God is holy. 
And in the third week, just last week, we saw that this calling, this challenge is a communal endeavor. Right? You are a stone, but a stone being built into a holy temple. You are not a stone simply to be a holy stone in and of yourself. You are part of a project that is bigger than you are. And only by participating in the temple that is being built do you actually understand salvation as it's worked out communally as God intends in the church. Well, as we come into our passage today, Peter continues to challenge the churches and he challenges us because what is at the forefront is his desire for us to understand that we are servants or slaves. In the Greek, the word is the same whether it's translated in English, servant or slave. And so Peter is saying, churches, you need to remember that you are a slave of the rivers in Christ. You are a slave of God. And only in forgetting that do you start to go down the wrong road. Part of this has to do with expectation. Right? Uh, if I see myself as someone who's very important and entitled to certain things, then... I'm going to have high expectations of what God is going to do for me. But if I see myself or understand myself as a slave, well, that's a little bit different. If you invited me over for dinner, and I heard that two weeks before you invited somebody else over for dinner, and they had been served by you a seven-course meal and a $500 bottle of wine, I'm pretty excited to come over to your house for dinner. But when I get there, I have certain expectations... You say, it was a very busy week, and I didn't have a lot of time. I grabbed some in and out and so let's fellowship together. Well, suddenly, I'm, I'm disappointed. Why? All because of expectations and how they had been set. Right? So how do you think of yourself in God's story? What is the place you would assign yourself, and what is your relationship to Jesus? Peter wants you to understand, and he believes there's great freedom in understanding, that you're a slave. How does that play out? You look at verse 13, in which Peter starts to challenge the churches not to pull away. He instructs them to be subject to every human institution. Now, the word that's translated there, uh, be subject, is hard to translate because we really don't have the equivalent in English. And it's not simply that you should be in submission under these authorities. But it's, uh, it's more like the opposite of, um, of withdrawing. Right? It's, uh, Peter is, is using a word that describes um, being present and engaged. Uh, not, not simply the idea of submitting to a certain authority, although that's certainly included. And so what Peter is saying is, yes, there's a temptation as persecution is ratcheting up, that you want to withdraw. You want to withdraw from the practice of the faith, you want to separate yourself somewhat from Christianity, or you may just want to hide from the rest of society and withdraw from that. Right? I'm going to practice Christianity, my faith, in a very private manner. And Peter's saying you can't withdraw. You have to be present. You have to be subject, even when it is difficult. You know, throughout the history of the church, there have been various separation uh, ethics or, or groups which is the idea that to really practice our faith, we have to pull away from society. The only way you could get that is if you cut First Peter out of your Bible. Right? Peter advocates, he says, yes, I recognize it's hard. Yes, I recognize aspects of the empire against you. And you are being called to live out your faith and not only live it out in faithfulness, but actually to do good in the midst of that which is afflicting you and that which um, 
might be persecuting him. And we know that is difficult, right? It's hard when the joking turns coarse at work. It might be easiest to withdraw. But Peter's giving us a vision, and maybe sometimes it's appropriate to do so. I think you're going to get into a lot of trouble if you try to make any of this black and white. But Peter's challenging us is to be present, even in challenging situations, and to do good in the midst of those situations. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have a tendency to hide? Do we have a tendency to retreat into a Christian enclave in which life is easier, and I don't necessarily really intentionally engage the good for the world that I'm called to live out? This is exactly what Peter calls us to, right? is to actually do good. Look now at verse 15. We're not only talking about not withdrawing, but Peter goes on and says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's the will of God that you would not only not withdraw, but that you would do good. Well, what is this good? What good are we being called to? It cannot only be the good that we're called to do to one another. In terms of bearing one another's burdens and making sure somebody has a meal or you know, sitting down and weeping with someone and joining in their, in their grieving. These are all good things, right? But it can't be only that because the point of the goodness that Peter calls us to is to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, what he's saying is your goodness is supposed to be on display in such a way that it would shut down Gentiles who would mock the faith. Now, I can think of a couple of examples of this. One is, uh, is Nicholas Kristof, who is an interesting guy. And there's no reason you should know that name, except that he's a columnist, uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, who writes about the deepest brokenness of the, on the globe. It's kind of his deal. So he'll travel all over, and he'll go to a play, he'll go to Syria, and he'll go to war-torn areas of Africa or uh, where Boko Haram is, and he'll write an article and relay those stories to the world. And uh, Christoph is a secular humanist. He has very little tolerance uh, for, um, well, I might be saying it a bit strong, but he's, he just has no interest in Christianity. Right? He doesn't think that's a very plausible story to believe in. But about once a year in his travels, he'll come across a group of Christians working somewhere, doing good in some fashion, and he'll be so moved by their story that he'll write a piece on that and he'll say, uh, listen, again, I don't, I'm not really interested in the Christian story, but I have to respect and tell you this story. And even though I don't agree with why they're doing it, if more Christians were like this, you know, we, wouldn't, we would have a different posture culturally in terms of respecting what they're doing. In other words, um, you know, I'm not really trying to call Christoph ignorant or foolish, right? But in his critique, potentially, of the church or of Christianity, right, it's silenced in the moment when he sees such goodness being done. Right? Or on a local level, Jennifer has a friend who isn't interested in the church. She, um, very much like Christoph, just doesn't think that that's a compelling or believable story. But it's interesting because when she hangs out with Jennifer and Jennifer's friends from the church, she will notice that they treat one another differently. 
And that there is a relational quality that's devoid in her life. And she will say things like, I wish I had friends like you did. So she's silenced in the moment of seeing a goodness on display in the hearts and lives of Christians that she doesn't have access to elsewhere. This is telling the story of the gospel. It's putting the goodness of God on display in our world. How are you carrying out the very will of God, according to verse 15, that you would be doing good in the world? How are you doing it? It's what we labor at when we collect food for the pantry, a helping hands. It's what we labor at when we do tornado relief or use the benevolence funds to bind up the wounds of someone who's broken in our community. It's what we labor at when we participate with the projects in India and when we try to raise $90,000 to buy an additional children's home uh, for the kids of the deep forest. These are ways in which we pursue and aspire to do good, to be faithful to what God has commanded us to do, but also to put something on display that silences the foolishness of ignorant people. So again, what are you doing? Called out of darkness into light to put this goodness on display. How are you going about it? Or do you need to ask questions like, am I too busy? Have I made myself so busy that I don't even have time to really intentionally engage in good? Or maybe I'm just too selfish. And putting the goodness of God on display and the goodness that I engage in is, if I'm going to be honest with myself, isn't really a priority. In which case we realize that we, if that's not a priority, we're not making a priority God's very will in this world, which means we're distancing ourselves from the way His salvation is played out. And when we distance ourselves from the way that His salvation is played out, we not only don't make ourselves free, we entrap ourselves, but we become more miserable because we're not becoming uh, uh, redeemed and rescued in the way that God intends to redeem and to rescue us. So, Peter's advocating that we do this good, right? You can't withdraw, you can't hide, you have to be engaged in good, but Peter is going to go on from there and uh, raise the stakes a bit. We might think that doing good in the world is something that requires too much time or too much energy and we're not that excited about it, but it's really not up to you, right? You don't have the opportunity to opt out of doing good. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now what an interesting turn of phrase, because Peter begins by saying you're free, and then he calls you a servant of God. In other words, you are both free and slave. Well, how in the world do those two things come together? It's in the Christian story that ultimately slavery is freedom because it's slavery to the Creator, to the one right and good and true thing. If you choose not to be a slave to a Creator, you're going to be a slave to something. Now, you may not believe that, but even if you decide that you're autonomous and you're going to make all the decisions in your life, you're really then a slave to your own will. Now, as you think about your life, has that gone well? When you decide what's best for you, apart from the will of God, when you make your own priorities, is that something that brings life and blessing to other people and puts the goodness of God on display, or is it something that ultimately takes your life from you? 
and empties you. You are a slave of the living God. And in that, I would argue to you, there comes great freedom. Because so often we, we live in a culture that's committed to autonomy and individualism and we can set our course. Right? You're the captain of your ship. And as we go down that story path, that line of narrative, we ultimately get very, very frustrated because we keep making bad decisions. And we keep doing things that don't necessarily grant us life. And people frustrate us and we realize somewhere on that path that we are incapable of redeeming the story when it goes wrong. We need someone who is stronger, who is more loving. Someone who can redeem the story when it does go wrong. And that's why to be a slave of the God who becomes human, and not only becomes human, but we're coming to the most glorious description of Christ, one of the most glorious descriptions of Christ in the entire New Testament. That he was reviled but would not revile in return and would suffer on your behalf that you might be redeemed and return to the overseer and shepherd of your souls. It is to be his slave that brings life. It is to be his slave that that renders us um, free from all of making so many of the decisions that we would of our own accord and simply saying, no, what really would honor Christ? What, would, what is the proper thing to do even in the midst of our suffering? Now, this becomes a very complicated question. Very complicated. Uh, and uh, Peter's writing to a very different context than we exist in. But what does it mean to the slave who says, okay, I'm supposed to be, be doing good to glorify God, and I'm being treated unjustly by my master? Well, look at verse 18. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Yikes. How can Peter advocate that a slave who's being treated unjustly should continue to do good and be obedient to a master in that fashion? What's Peter getting at? Well, Peter's doing two things at once. And we have to understand a little bit of the context to understand what Peter's doing. All right, Peter's talking now to slaves, and then next week we're going to see him talk to husbands and wives. Which means anytime, essentially, you see an ancient author take up uh, slaves and husbands and wives, and then sometimes children, you see Paul do it a couple of times, what they're doing is they're borrowing from the household code. In Greco-Roman culture, the household code was the idea that any, the stability of any society or empire was based on the stability of a household. And so there were rules governing the relationship in any given house of how parents should treat children, children should obey parents, husbands and wives should relate. Right? All of these are various uh, rules that govern the household. And if you had strong households, then you had a strong society. So you can imagine that it's in this worldview that Christianity comes into a household and starts to disrupt everything. Right? That suddenly, uh, you know, say a husband converts, but his wife isn't interested in the Christian God. And all of a sudden you have imbalance. Furthermore, what if a slave converts, but the master of the house isn't? You have even more imbalance, uh, particularly because slaves especially, but really slaves and wives, weren't permitted to choose their own God. You worship the God the master of the house chose for the house. 
So now Peter, we actually see, is doing a few amazing things. He's writing, a, he's writing to slaves, which is pretty much unheard of in the ancient world. Why would you write to a slave? They're not human beings. They're just human ch- uh, chattel. Right? They're property. They're, um, Greeks believe that one of the first divisions of creation was between masters and slaves. Right? That this was appointed almost in a caste-like fashion. So that Peter actually writes and instructs slaves in this is quite remarkable. Not only that, but you can't read too much into Peter in terms of the slavery bit because he's already declared that all Christians are free. He's also declared that all Christians are a royal priesthood, and he's declared that all Christians are slaves. So he's undermining, essentially, the entire household rubric, right? even though he's telling slaves to be obedient. In other words, what Peter is setting in motion is an ethic that will ultimately undermine and destroy the household code and the division between masters and slaves in the ancient world. But he doesn't come out overtly and say that because it would have been so scandalous. The persecution would have immediately ratcheted it up and it would have been terrible for the church. What he's doing is saying the Messiah has started a revolution. It's a revolution of trusting yourself so completely to the will of God that you are willing to suffer injustice and be committed to doing good. And ultimately, as a result of that, empires of evil will topple because you have taken up the life and the example of the Messiah, which is exactly where Peter goes. Now, before we get there, I mean, this is kind of a segue because it's the example of the Messiah himself that informs what it means for us to be committed to doing good. But you read this bit on suffering and justice, right? And you, you could make a lot of bad implications or applications, right? This is an ancient world that, that lived and moved and had its being in ways, that was a funny turn of phrase for that, but um, that existed in ways that are very different from our ways, So to simply say, uh, oh, well, we always have to suffer injustice based on what Peter has written would be a very very careless application, right? And we could think of um, people in abusive situations or people in abusive jobs uh, in which really it would be crazy to suggest that you stay there and just suffer that injustice, right? Are we not at one level to be committed to justice on this earth? So how do we appropriate Peter's words? What is the connection, connecting point to the world in which we live? Well, Peter, at, 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 the very, um, at the very least, we would say this, particularly as we're going into the example of Christ, that Peter is talking about uh, a, a follower of Jesus Christ commits to do good in this world. And at various times, you will suffer for that decision. When you suffer for choosing to do good, the right answer is not to back away from doing good, right, or to opt out or to hide. The right answer is to continue to be faithful and entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And is this not the example of Christ who, who gives up his rights and privileges, says, I will follow God faithfully, even to the cross, even though I am suffering injustice for being committed to doing good. And then as a result, He trusts himself to God who judges justly and is ultimately vindicated in his resurrection, which is the same story that you will share in. Now, look at Jesus. Uh, Peter's gone through all this example. He's called us to do good. And he goes to verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
so that you might follow in his steps. Christ's suffering is an example that you might follow in his steps. Now listen, we always talk about Jesus' life being salvific, which it is, right? It saves us, but it's not just saving us. It is our example. And the word that Peter uses there, boys and girls, you'll like this word. It's um, how do you learn to write? When you learn to print, you learn to do cursive, you get a book that often has the letters in dotted lines, right? and you trace over the letters. This is the word that Peter is using is that exact idea. Even in the ancient world, when a child was learning to write, they would get a tablet with the letters that were already formed and would trace over those letters. And what Peter is saying is you have to trace over the life of Christ in order to fulfill your calling. He has given you an example and you are called to follow uh, that example, which, yes, is an example of suffering. So does that mean what, I, have to, I have to trace the letters of Christ in the wilderness? I have to trace the letters of Christ being tempted and, and tried? I have to t- uh, trace the letters of his being rejected and mocked and scourged and picking up his cross? Yes, that's exactly what Peter means. Right? Who would want this religion? Who would want this faith? Right? It's actually one of the reasons I love Christianity is because you'd be crazy to buy into this. What Peter is saying is, congratulations, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy temple, you've been called. You know what you've been called to? To suffer just like Jesus suffered. Who wants that? Unless maybe it's the best thing for us. Right? What is the benefit of tracing Jesus' suffering? Well, what is the benefit of Jesus' suffering? Let's begin there. And you can look at verse 23, which talks about his suffering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's it's Christ's trust in God that enables him to remain faithful. And as a result, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And it is in your suffering for doing good that you give testimony to the healing of Christ and extend that healing to the world. What might this look like? I have a friend, his name is Sam. And Sam uh, was in New York City a long time ago, before I was. And he worked in New York City, and he, uh, he became excited about the ministry and uh, decided to go to seminary. And the ministry he was involved with in New York City said, we're so excited you're going to seminary. Uh, we can't wait to have you back. We'll see you in three years. And so with great gusto and, and excitement for the future, Sam went to seminary and Enjoyed his time there, but was excited to be returning to New York City. He was coming back, and the ministry said, uh, we're sorry, uh, the playing field has changed, and there's, there's, we don't have a place for you. And so you can imagine, Sam, I just went to, to seminary. I sacrificed time and energy and money to study for three years. I've labored in this. It was with the expectation that I would come back and participate in this great gospel project in New York City. And now, God, what are you doing? 
and I've committed myself to good, and now I can't go to where I want to be. And, and as Sam started to look for a job, he couldn't find the job that he wanted. Right? There wasn't a lot on the table. And ultimately, uh, God provided, uh, opened you know, a place for Sam to go, and that place was uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And Sam thought, I don't want to go to Mormon land. And God said, you're going to Mormon land. So Sam moved his family and started a church in Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake City. And he labored there. Now, Sam could have said any number of things. He could have said, okay, the playing field's changed. Well, I'm going to go back to some other kind of work. I don't like the church. This is how you treat people. Or, uh, you know, God, I'd serve you in a lot of places, but not there. So I think I'm going to go do something else. Or he could say, okay, I'm going to entrust myself to the one whose will and plans I don't necessarily understand, and I'm going to go and try to labor faithfully in this place. And that's what he did. And over decades, Sam built beautiful relationships with people who were uh, hurt and coming out of uh, the, the Mormon church. He, uh, a total of four churches would be planted in addition to his in the greater Salt Lake City area. Right? He does a wonderful work. Now he's in his mid-50s, and uh, that ministry that said no 20-some-odd years ago said, would you please come back? And now he's going back to New York City and is delighted to be doing that, but also understands that by faithfully uh, suffering and being committed to good, even in the midst of what wasn't his first choice, right? he experienced more of Christ. He uh, put that goodness on display so that others would come to Christ. Right? And what happened, of course you know what happened to him as a, as a person. Right? He's changed. He's, he was humbled. He grew in grace. Right? He got, in some ways, he, you know, you can imagine a young guy of a seminary says, I deserve to be in New York City, gets sent to Salt Lake City. And of course, what? He's, he's going to be over himself in a certain sense. So even in that whole process, not only did it bring good to those outside of the kingdom, but it brought good to Sam himself. He was a better man. He was more Christ-like as a result of being faithful in that situation than if he had not been or if he had chosen a different path, right? And this is exactly what Peter is talking about, that we would be conformed to the suffering of Christ, which does not only, uh, not only puts God's goodness on display to the world, right? but it kills our old nature, and it makes us new. This is why Peter says uh, it's a grace-filled... Um, he says it's a grace-filled thing to engage. Um, sorry, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. When he says it's a gracious thing, it's not, um, the idea isn't, oh, this is just kind of a nice little ditty that you're doing. The idea is this, is, this thing that you're doing is grace-filled. It is an agent of God's grace. Right? It's an agent of God's grace to the world, and it's an agent of God's grace to you as you're transformed. The greatest thing that you could possibly do this morning is to embrace anew the fact that you are a slave of Jesus Christ. There's no better place to be. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning and thank you that you indeed are a good master. We thank you that you have left the most beautiful of all examples for us, we thank you that you entrusted yourself to the Father so completely that you were obedient and suffered injustice so that we might be healed. 
It is by your stripes that we are healed. And we thank you that you have brought us back to uh, the overseer and shepherd of our souls. In this, we rejoice as we come to your table this morning and ask that you would nourish us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.